0: What do you think of when I say childcare? Educators, right? Or maybe you're a bit more negative, like myself and Mike, and think undervalued, underpaid, overworked, overstressed, underappreciated. Well, those are also all true. And there is a whole other part of our sector that we often gloss over. In today's Napcast, a podcast produced by Hilltop Children's Center in Seattle, Washington. On the traditional lands of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people, we shine light on the forgotten part of our child care industry. Today, myself, Nick Dronis, and Mike Brown, my co host, whose pronouns for both of us are he, him, are joined by the executive director of Hand in Hand, the Domestic Employers Network, to take a look at the essential workers in our homes, the nannies who care for our children the home attendants who provide support to children and seniors with abil- different, differing abilities, and the house cleaners who keep our children, families, and homes clean and safe.
1: All right, y'all. So everyone knows that child care is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there, yet we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full-time, have hobbies, Show your friends and family love, self care, and also fine tune your skills and grow more in depth? That's where we come in. These NapCasts are designed to help you learn on the go, hear another perspective, spark debate, <laughs> heck, even agree with us. But honestly, remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So, are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right now, good. Let's get it. So I was in the store the other day grabbing a bottle of wine, you know, just such a healthy way to deal with month seven, eighth of this pandemic, this election and everything else. 2020 uh, has to offer and the cashier was just making small talk and asked me what I did for a living so when I said I was a central worker can you guess she actually said teacher which I was like oh wow that's the first thing like that's the first time anyone has ever answered that they usually go and look at me because I have a bigger bill they're like oh football player and I'm like I wish I made that much money um but she said teacher and she also added in that she never knew how important educators were now that she had to be uh, at home <laughs> almost 24-7 and finding engaging ways to support the development of her son. And I feel like this time last year, people would have laughed if we said our industry was essential.
2: Oh my gosh. And so, (laughs) yeah, it's so powerful how this pandemic has pulled back the curtain on how many workers make all of our lives work. You as a teacher, the grocery clerk as an essential worker, the bus drivers, the childcare workers, the home care workers, they've been on the front lines for the last eight months. And it's even clear how many, many, many decades they've been making sure all of our lives work. Mm. And so many of us got to work from home. I got to work from home during the oh, stay yeah. at home orders. Mm-hmm. Um, but so many of you essential workers have been forced to keep our economy going for me. So thank you very much. And
1: you get to hmm. stay at home because you're in California, right?
2: I'm in California. Yep, we uh, had a shelter in place order in March and I work for an organization that a national organization that we've all main Our main job is being on Zoom all the time <laughs> to meet <laughs> with each other. Um, but yeah, for sure, essential workers need more than just pots and pans clanging. Remember back then when people appreciated <laughs> that little appreciative moment? <laughs> um, what we're working for at my organization is more protection, better pay, healthcare, mm. particularly for domestic workers, for childcare workers, home care workers, and house cleaners. And they deserve all the essential workers all of us in this country know deserve to be the most valued workers during and beyond this pandemic, for sure,
1: I feel like we should just play that part over and over again, mm-hmm. right? pay us a little bit more. we are essential, yeah, I think just our yours and ours and everyone who's listening, just the the personal commitment to upholding so many different values and, and gifts for you know, from dignity and respect to, you know, just seeing someone as a human being for workers and in professional experience in leadership development and community organizing is really why I was so drawn to you and the work that you do. Yeah. Which all means nothing if listeners have Really, no idea who the heck I'm talking to. So, Stacy, who the heck are you? <laughs>
2: sure. I'm Stacey Kono. Um, I'm third generation Japanese American. I go by she, her pronouns. As you said, I'm in Berkeley, um, so Chochenyo, Ohlone land. And my work is my, the organization I work with is Hand in Hand, the Domestic Employers Network. And as I said, the focus that we have is bringing dignity and respect to domestic workers as essential workers and uniquely organizing the people who hire them. So it really flips the switch on the notion that bosses and workers are always supposed to be opposed um, and really brings actually bosses and workers together to be advocating for respect and dignity in, in this industry. Um, I joined the organization because my own personal experience is really connected to care, both workers and employers, because my grandma, she was a domestic worker who cleaned very big houses in the East Bay here in California, um, but was paid really low wages. Um, I was a personal attendant when I was in college to a man with cerebral palsy, so I helped him get dressed and bathed every morning. Mm. Um, And then my parents, actually, when my dad was recovering from stomach cancer, hired a caregiver to help my dad eat again, walk again. Um, And the vital role that that this man, Ronaldo, played in helping my dad come back, (laughs) come back from a year of major uh, surgery and his body being attacked by all the chemicals, right, like was a huge deal. Um, So I've been on the worker side and I've been on the employer side, which I think has given me perspective to understand um, why together workers and employers need to work together. Um, And I'm sure everybody, including you, have a story connected to care. And that's why we all have a stake in building a culture that values care.
1: You know, just thinking about how we're coming off of the heels of this past presidential election, I, I think... What you just said is such a powerful start to this, NAPCAST, just hearing your connection uh, and the personal stake you have in this industry. I mean, one of the images I, I, I have been kind of thinking of um, that that I saw during the election was that a group of protesters in Arizona standing outside the building where they were counting the votes and essentially blocking them in. And we all have a stake, like you said, in building a culture that values care. And for me it was kind of disheartening seeing that scene because that's the exact opposite of what both of our organizations are really trying to achieve, directly and indirectly, working to create really this cycle of love and and care, respect and humility in people. And you know, twenty twenty has made it hard to do that, right? Being a part of a leadership team makes it even more difficult. Mm -hmm. There is just no clear sign for what September 2021 is going to look like for any of us. I might need all my staff in order to do this work. I might only need 10. We might have to close our center. And I imagine it's just the same for other centers, organizations, and other parts of the childcare industry like yourself.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, it totally resonates with me that it's it's a challenging time to be in a leadership role. And then to connect it back to this moment, it's like when we don't have a leadership model in the White House to actually follow, who's actually supporting working people, small businesses, nonprofits, you know, it's it's even more challenging because um, it makes all of our jobs harder. Um, but for sure, um, like we've just been talking about schools and child care centers and essential workers should be the ones that our government is prioritizing at this time, who we're supporting, because they make the rest of the economy work. Um, Hand in hand, for my organization though, right now we're we're in a unique position because um, a lot of our work, the, the staffing and I'm knocking on wood as I say this, is funded by donors who care about care and who are part of this movement and also foundations. And so far, Many foundations and donors have seen this. This work needs to be funded. I can't say that, and it, uh, probably a year from now it may be very, very different. But the work that we're doing to protect nannies, house cleaners, home care workers is so, so critical. They're, they've been the ones who've been invisible for so long, mm-hmm. and yet, been, and falling through the cracks at this moment. They're the ones. So many of them didn't get to access um, relief in the same way that so many of other mm-hmm. U.S. folks did, and. They're the ones who are either having to continue to go to work and not necessarily having PPE because they're the ones who um, are their own sort of boss as a private worker in someone's private home. Or sometimes they just got dropped. Somebody sent them a text message and was like, hey, stay-at-home order, sorry. I see it never, maybe. So all of these workers, majority women of color, Black women, immigrant women, are left in the dust and and needing to, to... find the money to pay for their rent and, and food on the table. So um, when the pandemic actually started at first, what we did was we urged domestic employers, people who employ nannies, house cleaners, and home care workers to keep paying them because so many people, their paychecks weren't affected in that period. And if they could keep paying just as big corporations were doing for their employees, that's the right thing to do. We knew not everybody could do that. Um, but that was something we were really challenging f- folks to do to bring value to the work. And close to a 1,000 people across the country signed on to that pledge. And many more other employers I know were also really working to make sure that the workers that they employ could get access to benefits and to, could em- apply for unemployment insurance if they qualified. So, you know, it's it's a hard time all around, um, but everyone's doing good work
0: like <laughs> Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And I'm
1: glad you kind of brought that up because that segues into kind of just my first thought and and question, opening question that I have for you. When people mention childcare, as you as you said, domestic work, domestic workers, our peers, mammies, that's not even the first thing that comes to mind. And I'm in the field. So can you let us know what is domestic work? How does it support the childcare industry as a whole? And why should we, educators, policymakers, lobbyists, et cetera, et cetera, should start to include domestic work and domestic workers in our language when we fight for a more equitable workforce?
2: Yes, yes. Well, so for us, at hand in hand, but also the broader domestic workers movement, our sisters at National Domestic Workers Alliance, they use the term domestic work to refer to the labor that's done in private homes, including childcare, house cleaning, elder care, support for people with disabilities. Um, and sometimes that work is, um, these workers are employed by an agency that basically deploys the worker to private homes. And sometimes, and actually most of the time, it's an individual person, family member or um, family that's that is hiring directly and paying either through payroll or, or paying cash to this worker to do the work in the home. Um, domestic work has its roots in slavery. So it's no coincidence that the majority, as I was saying before, of the workforce is black women and immigrant women of color. And then also, layer it on to the, the intersectionality of it, right? Caring, giving and domestic work has culturally been assigned to women it's the women's work. Let them take care of the kids and wash the dishes and, you know, um, uh, clean up after the rest of us kind of thing. So both racism and sexism is at play in how domestic workers are treated. That's why we see the low wages today, the vulnerability to exploitation and abuse, little recourse for accountability. And it's also, hand in hand, because of our work with employers, we're seeing that's why there's a lack of awareness on employers' parts. They are... Getting the same ideas that they're, they're a part of sort of this whole ecosystem that devalues this work, even as they know that it's essential to their lives. Um, most people don't even think of themselves as employers. So sometimes that's a paradigm shift we have to create for them, right? Oh, I just have a house cleaner coming to my house, you know, once a month to help me out, but I'm not an employer. Mm. We want to challenge them to see, you no, know, actually it's a valued and legitimate prof- profession Mm -hmm. and that you as an employer have responsibilities um sometimes there's some shame people have attached to it right because of class stuff like oh i don't want to admit i'm have someone who's helping me out but in fact we are in a society that is so interdependent we need each other and this work should be celebrated and valued so like you were saying before the pandemic has taught us that the value of essential work and caregiving is so critical and that's why in our organizing, we really try to bring folks together, people who care about equitable public policies and systems to support domestic worker rights and protections.
1: Now, no matter how, how many times I hear it, I read about it, or I talk about it, it still surprises me just how ingrained slavery in yeah. the legacy of it is still rooted in many of our systems and, and in our thoughts. And I just knowing just knowing who I am, right? I'm an anomaly as a black male working in childcare. Mm-hmm. And I get it on the regular, a lot of derogatory comments or micro insults when I disclose
0: that I work with young children. Mm-hmm. And from from what it from the sounds <laughs>
1: because it sounds like from what you're saying, right, your industry is mostly that was Tongue tied, thought I had. Um, <laughs> what it sounds like, your industry is mostly filled with um, femme identifying people as well. So, what are some of the the cultural stigmas, the stereotypes, um, the comments male domestic workers face, and what are some of the ways that you're supporting them as they navigate this cultural racism?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, definitely. I I would imagine male domestic workers and male-identified um, domestic workers do face some level of challenges and probably still have some male privilege, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of, um, of of the workers that I've talked to, there are cases where sort of the way patriarchy works, mm-hmm. that, um, that in some ways, some men are seen as protectors and, um, and so that they often will get some jobs more so than women. Right now, during um, the pandemic, as some employers have been trying to bring workers into their homes to help with their kids doing online learning, um, there are lots of cases where race and, and gender come into play, and, and education. wants you to be somebody who is college educated. If um, we'd love to, for you to speak English fluently to do this work. And there's ways in which in the process, then women of color, immigrant women get sort of left out of um, the work. And we hear so many stories, particularly from Black women who share just the, the challenge with racism that they face on the daily from work. And I'm sure it's the same for men of color and Black men as well in this industry, that there's ways in which our color makes us, as much as the color is what what is um, visible, it actually makes this workforce invisible, um, and, and leaves folks so vulnerable to wage theft, being ignored, um, not getting benefits, not being seen as serious work as, and I see that with education as well, just the ridiculous assumptions people have made around, um, how teachers should be accommodating in this time period, the hard work teachers are doing to actually flex to make sure because our our government isn't setting us up to be able to to deal with this pandemic. So um, I do feel like class, race, gender is fully at play. There are hierarchies within it. And in the end, what we want is for care work to be valued in the way that in the ways that we do in our hearts, I mean, I think so many people just see it, oh, that's sort of a feminine thing. We actually are going to value the technology and, and the other sort of fancy cars kind of stuff. But really, the labor that should be valued in our society, if it aligns with our values, are, is really the teachers, the domestic workers, all the workers that are making, um, building our communities and caring for us.
1: A lot of a lot of what we do on our NAPCAS is is to try to raise our level of consciousness of of the inequities that, that are being that are happening within our world. So bringing it back to the work that you do, are there things that employers, which in your case are homeowners mostly, um, are there things that they do that perpetuate cultural racism against your workers, which are mostly black and immigrant uh, women ex workers?
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, you know, um, and again, this is part of the the larger systems and cultural ideas that are so deeply ingrained in our society. A lot of folks don't pay workers well; uh, they don't see it as living wage work, even though some, like especially with their caring for loved ones, like. Of course you want to make sure you're paying someone well they're caring for the most important thing in your life. Um but oftentimes people try to go on the cheap and they um they lower the wages and aren't paying fair wages or don't see minimum wage laws as something that they need to abide by. Um this works sort of like oh these workers come into my home and leave. Um I I don't need to pay for benefits or provide them holidays. I'm taking a vacation. Maybe I'll have you take vacation the same time as me. What if instead employers actually said, when are you planning to schedule a vacation? You can take that and I'll deal with my, you know, there's so many just sort of assumptions people have as employers that I think once they have the awareness, then they're able to interrupt it. Right. But
1: it almost sounds like ownership.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then going back to the roots of slavery, right? Um, yeah, if this is a working relationship and not ownership, then there should be a fair work agreement. We should be clear about the guidelines and expectations. We can't all of a sudden just add new responsibilities on to the worker who's cleaning our home because in mean, what we saw in California was after so many of the fires that took place here, workers were just being asked, hey, can you clean up after this fire? Like they're in a toxic mess. They're endangering their health and safety. Employers should know that's not right. And in some ways, it comes back to the basic thing that so many of us as working people really um, expect. So many of the labor laws that have been created, right, that unfortunately domestic workers have been excluded from. Those are all the things we should be giving to the same work, the, the domestic workers that we employ. Um, how do we want to be treated? Do we want to be able to take vacation when we want? Yes. Do we want to be able to take holidays? Do we want flexibility if our kid is sick so we can stay home? So many of us have those things. And then if we're not providing them to the very folks that are making a difference in our lives, it just, it doesn't make sense. So those are some of the things that we really are urging folks to take on. We have something called a fair care pledge where it, it has folks, uh, employers really pledge to pay a fair wage, a living wage, provide paid time off. And Negotiate a fair contract and we try to provide resources and tips because we know there's not an HR department out there That's helping folks who are domestic employers Um, And we really love to partner with community centers and organizations to get those resources out That's how we create the paradigm shift. That's how we create a change in the way people think about this work
1: so I read the other day on your Facebook page Capitalism, capitalism depends on the double exploitation of working parents in order for the system to function and parents need childcare in order to work. This is, some, this is the reason that childcare workers, like many low-paid workers, were suddenly discovered to be, quote-unquote, essential during the pandemic. They are essential for the system to function, end quote. And I was like, yo, dang, like, we really going there? <laughs> Okay, all right, let's do it. And millions of American households employ domestic workers to provide care for children, among many other different types of supports. The majority of these domestic workers, like you said, are women X, and majority of them are foreign-born women X of color. So where can child care workers across the states, since you have offices in Couple of different states, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Washington State, California. I guess where and how can childcare workers in childcare programs organize and come together with you, with our neighbors to support families who are under political, emotional, psychological attacks, including raids and deportation right now?
2: Oh gosh. Um, well, you know, so our In terms of workers, where workers can go, I would tend to direct them towards the National Domestic Workers Alliance, which is our sister organization that's organizing workers across the country, but also all the different childcare advocacy organizations um, in our communities that are maybe providing direct service, but I think many of them are being moved to get more into advocacy and organizing right now because they're seeing that we actually really need to create systemic change and policy change not just for the survival of their organization but for our whole all of our communities just the level of challenge and suffering right for neighbors uh, our families um and domestic workers i'll say our sisters at ndwa um they've been leading the fight for rights um and for care infrastructure and for our democracy there's over Nine states and two cities, or there's nine states and two cities that have won domestic worker bills of rights to create protections for workers. Um, for your folks in Seattle who are listening in, the domestic worker ordinance that was passed there was led by domestic workers and supported by employers. It provides minimum wage protections, breaks, and prohibits employers from holding on to workers' passports, which you can imagine forces
1: immigrant workers in particular
2: to Be in really sketchy situations
1: where they're forced to stay on their job. Mom used to always say, if you want something done, get a woman X of color.
2: Hey! Yes! (laughs) (laughs) So we're working really closely with workers to organize employers to support these policies, for them to actually change their practices at home, right? Um, All the things we talked about create contract, pay fair wage, and then One of the thing is so many of the employers who have joined us They've really gained more political awareness and consciousness. So they've gotten involved in these fights against deportations family separations raids The the movement for black lives because they see even if they're white employers They see their stake in actually fighting for a society that values all of our communities um, and how it's tied to winning domestic worker rights too. Um, We really are trying to create and cultivate co-conspirators in the racial justice and social justice movement by bringing in employers who aren't workers, right? Allies who aren't workers to understand what solidarity and interdependence mean in practice.
1: Mm. Zooming out a little bit. Because you said um, Bill of Rights. So yeah. I'm thinking about the, Con- the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights that we have here as, as a country. They were really remarkable documents. And they were deeply flawed. It was constructed by a group of white males, the same males who called indigenous people savages and called black people three-fifths of a person. The list, the list goes on and on and on. Um, some people might know that, but the way whitewashed our history and our curriculum is. But that's a different episode. Um, so when it comes to crafting um, your, your organization's domestic workers' right, bill of rights, how are you centralizing voices of color in the process? And I bring that up because that's a topic that I talk to a lot of white leaders uh, across the United States. Um, When they especially around anti-racism work and how do I centralize the voices of the marginalized? um, When I'm leading with the anti-racism lens or or when they are talking about the confluence of racism and power
2: That's a great question um in terms of the domestic workers bills of rights specifically as a demand it, those those policies obviously had to go through a legislative process, but the actual demands were all shaped by domestic workers, women of color, black women domestic workers, who basically said, these are my, our experiences. These are the things that we need to shift and change. Um, and in many ways, at, at acknowledging that history of where all of the, the bills of rights and the constitution, where all of those came from, what's really um, remarkable about the domestic workers' bills of rights are the ways in which it's women at the table who are all giving input into creating those demands and these policies. And um, I feel like for Hand in Hand, as an organization that's multiracial and multiclass and made up of employers, our job has been to partner very closely and support, um, support the policy proposals of domestic workers. Certainly, there's been moments where um, it's been important to name some of the challenges and the, the sort of, uh, not contradictions, but ways in which, say, for example, overtime pay for home care workers could mean that some middle or lower income seniors and people with disabilities may not get access to the same amount of care. That was a tension in some of the Bill of Rights fights that it was obviously a worker demand, but it was a challenge. And we found that what we needed to do is come together um, using an intersectional lens to see, we don't wanna throw away workers and we don't wanna throw away seniors and people with disabilities. This is something where we wanna demand public investment in care so that workers have good jobs, so both win, workers have good jobs and so that communities have access to care so they can stay live in their live and thrive in the independently in their homes right rather than what the tendency because of ableism is has been well let's institutionalize folks and put them away too long the independent living movement has fought for independence for folks with disabilities and it's been important to build that bridge together with a, a frame that includes racial justice and disability justice
1: you spoke a lot of truth right there which thank you um <laughs> And from what I'm gleaming is that a lot of our policies and our programs have yet to catch up with our state's changing realities. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you know, and then the story that you just told, you know, seniors are suffering. And just overall, our families are suffering.
0: Yeah.
1: And we know about funding. That's always something I'm going after. Uh, but what about some of the other innovative initiatives that other states, other programs that you're working with have passed or have argued for, that that isn't necessarily providing providing us with more money, but it's supporting the industry as a whole.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's so many problems, but that also means there's so many solutions, right? One thing we've seen and worked for in the Hudson Valley region of New York is to try to get uh more and it's back to funding but actual um funding to support say for example transportation work sometimes folks decide not to be a home care worker because they don't got a car to get around to all the places that they need to go to especially in more rural environments so that's something that we really were working for how can there be potential transportation subsidies as a way to support the home care workforce right mm-hmm. um How can there be um, job training and incentives that really help people to take on home care jobs? I mean, one thing we were hearing is that some folks, even though it may be their life purpose to provide care to elders or people with disabilities, they were opting to work in fast food because they could make more money doing that work than doing the care work. There's something that doesn't quite make sense about that. It's a value to our community when home care um, is it, there's enough home care work and, and actually that 's a big challenge across the country we 're going to face as folks stay al- alive longer as, as grow older right as our elder population grows, which is wonderful because of medical advancements and such um, it means we 're going to need more care workers and we 're not keeping up the pace so There's all these reasons that that are both funding-related, but also, frankly, for our whole public health infrastructure as a society and economy, that we we need to be paying attention to domestic work and care work.
1: So, Pre-COVID, did you have a like? I guess a favorite way of reaching out to lawmakers or collaborating with organizations to advocate and lobby for this important change, especially around since you know I work in a childcare program around all pairs and nannies. And then the second part of that question is during COVID, how have you um, or you've seen other people advocate differently?
2: Yeah. I mean, grass, the pre-COVID grassroots organizing is about talking to people, hearing their stories, helping them see how it's connected to something much larger, right? The care infrastructure that we deserve, and then really inviting them to make their voices heard. And a lot of times that at, at, pre-COVID that looked like actually getting folks to show up to the state houses and getting to meet with their representatives really, really exciting um, and really giving them so much sense of power to, um, and to realize I'm the boss. I'm actually the boss of this person they're not the boss of me. Um, That's the kind of transformation I think organizing really tries to create. I think during COVID, what we're seeing is so much more um, uh, online uh, type of advocacy which is really important. It actually has increased some accessibility, especially for folks who have a more challenging time um, getting out of the house to in-person things. So in many ways we've created more access now to advocacy, Um, but certainly it's challenging. I bet you, you talk to any organizer and they'd tell you it's, it's just different when you can't hug someone, right? It's just different. Um, to be able to build, but I think this—the this, still the same purpose—is there. We want to show people that we all have so much power, um, to, and our stories matter, and that we need to tell our stories and come together to be able to create the communities that we want to
1: live in. Do you do you attack it differently if you go into say we ever if we ever emerge from COVID? It doesn't mm-hmm. feel how, like but we will. Let's stay positive. Yes. Uh, we're knocking on the door of our elected official, whether that's in Olympia or whether, you know, Spokane, wherever it may be in the state of Washington, is there, and I'm losing my question already, um, is there, oh, how do you respond or how do you come back when you get dismissed, especially being a woman ex of color
0: yourself?
2: You know, I think what, Powers me and strengthens me, even in the face of rejection, is our uh, the community um, in California. Um, a Senate bill to win health and safety protections for domestic workers was just vetoed by the governor um, earlier this summer, and you know there were a lot of tears shed, a lot of rage to think that the lives of domestic workers don't matter as much as other workers, but this powerful community of workers and, and of employers that have been organizing, together with them, I feel like I could do anything. All these workers were like, we're ready to come back next year, you know? So it's, it's the, the connection um, that I think makes the big difference. And it's knowing that, you know, the road is long. Um, the New York Domestic Worker Bill of Rights took many, many years to win. Um, many, many times of going back and back and back. And um, while I want things to happen quickly, including this moment <laughs> that we're in right now, where we want every vote to be counted, um, it, it there's a level of persistence that I, I know needs to happen. So I get to be disappointed and angry and I get to get right back up with my people and move forward.
1: So thinking about Community, uh, many of the families we serve here at Hilltop, our little small little community, the families we serve, they have nannies, they have all pairs, cooks, personal care aides, um, the list goes on and on and on. So, in your experience, um, what does a good workplace look like in the home? And I guess, is there a way that centers and programs can support families in ensuring they are partnering? Um, with each other, with the organization, um, with the community to create and uphold equitable workplaces?
2: Yeah. Our experience is that most employers want to do the right thing. They just don't have the resources and support. In fact, sometimes they're in the middle of Crisis themselves in their lives. That's why they're reaching out to get help in their house, right? I just had a baby and I got to go back to work and I need to hire someone or My parent my aging parent got sick and I need to get someone to help me You know, it's it's a very stressful and challenging time But what we've seen is most people they want to do the right thing So to be able to slow down and create a fair working agreement is one really essential thing I think that's that's key for all of us as employees and workers, right? We want a clear job description and we want to be able to have that so that if there's other additional tasks that we get to actually negotiate and be have have that respect and dignity in our work. So that's one key thing. I mean, we really invite employers if they want certain things to be done, they want to use non-toxic cleaning supplies in their home to or to please provide that if they want to do if they want to have their child um, on the computer doing certain work to provide that technology and provide orientation even right so many of us get oriented when we start a new job so there's i think really basic things that are about what do most workplaces do what am i going to do because my home is a workplace as well that's really really key Um, i think also community groups can play a really great role in sharing these resources we have most of ours online, but we've also been distributing checklists and other sample contracts and being able to point people towards resources so that they can be informed is really key. Um, and that's part of what we want to do, but being able to partner with organizations and schools and childcare centers is really the best way to reach the widest audience.
1: And where can we get that contract and tip sheet?
2: Yes, our website is www.md. Domesticemployers.org. And we have a bunch of contracts and tip sheets, but also resources specifically related to safety under COVID that we developed um, for employers that we've found are, have been really, really useful to
1: folks. Hmm. So I heard an action step, and my thing is can't have action without accountability. So when, uh, say, I as as a child care center presents this to a family that I know employs a nanny or a au pair and they sign it. Is there a way that I can actually be like, hey, are you holding, are you, how do I hold them accountable essentially to this?
2: You know, what we invite folks to do is join our organization, become a member of Hand in Hand, and then they have a whole community of support that can also, can both um, hold folks accountable, right? Hold them accountable to what they said they're gonna do, to learn about the laws, to follow the laws, but also get the support that they need. We know it's not easy right now. It's not easy, for sure it's not easy for workers, but it's also not easy for so many individuals and families who are employing. So we wanna really support folks and we believe that's what's gonna transform this industry um, and transform the the old, ancient, and unuseful ways that can be discarded of thinking about domestic work.
1: Reach. <laughs> is there, and kind of like the last strand of this thought that I'm having is, is there a way that as a center, I can discreetly check in with the au pair and, and with a, a nanny specifically, just because we're in childcare, To be like, hey, is everything going all right? Is everything going okay? But without being invasive, and especially since childcare is predominantly white, without going in as
0: kind of this white savior mentality. Mm.
2: Wow, yeah. I think, I think, you know, what we've always believed in, and actually what we even encourage employers to do, is try to be. in um, frequent and authentic conversation with people so that with workers so that they feel safe to share what their lives are like and what the conditions that they are facing are Um, oftentimes I think um, especially because people are so busy and then again people don't see the home as a workplace they'll race through the day and not um, really stop to talk and check in with workers. I think the pattern of that and the practice of that is what creates the openness and safety for folks to be able to share what their experiences are. I think what interrupts sort of the, the you didn't say the word condescension, it was more like white savior-ish mm-hmm. dynamic um, is really not about assuming there's a problem necessarily, mm. also acknowledging people's real experiences um, and being able to offer resource and support if needed. Um, I think that's really key um, that and and that enables folks to feel some sense of power. also, you know one thing I've heard is like for so many employers to really cheer people on. To, to cheer workers on to know that they deserve respect and dignity. Because I think, you know, oftentimes some employers will say, oh, I wanted to offer this benefit to the worker, but she declined. And there might be politeness in it. There's definitely a power dynamic in it. Yeah. But it's really key to say, no, I, I'm, I'm rooting for you. I value you. And so this is what I'm going to give to you. So there's, there's this piece that's not a savior thing. It's about belief in and respect for uh, domestic work and domestic workers?
1: Sometimes you you need to say it over and over again because I know I am super stubborn and I come from the Caribbean and we will say no, no, no until you ask like the 11th time. But kind of know that line between, hey, this is a no, I'm adamant, I'm good. And this is a... No, that's kind of disguised in, I don't want to be seen as you or a lot of other kind of negative connotations
0: that, yeah. that we grew up in. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. So at some point of our, in
1: our lives, most of us, we either fall into one of these different categories or know someone who does. Now that's seniors, um, someone living with a chronic illness being um, disabled, or uh, living with temporary injuries. And my mom used to say, you know, <laughs> if common sense was common, everybody would have it. But I bring that up because if we have ever uttered the words, I believe in social justice or I'm a social justice warrior, then we really need to be fighting for fair label practices, um, uh, basic protections, living wages in uh, something that keeps coming up in our conversation, just that deep respect for those fighting for justice for people with various disabilities, both visible and invisible. So I kind of just want to wrap up our chat today with your thoughts through an intersectional lens on what are things we need to commit to as individuals and as organizations to honor disabled children and build a society in which every child and every adult can find and access the supports they need in order to thrive. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the main things Hand in Hand focuses on is really getting people to practice their values, what's core to them in their home as domestic employers and out in the world in the exact same way that you're naming. Um, We think about intersectionality as a framework first created by Kimberly Crenshaw as a way to recognize the multiple ways our society oppresses groups of people based on race, gender, ability, class, sexuality, all these overlapping identities, right? And so just as we've been talking about it, it's meant that domestic workers as black immigrant women face increasing challenges to access power and respect because of the multiple isms that they're facing in their lives. And for people with disabilities, particularly for people with disabilities who are low income or queer or of color, they too face those overlapping barriers. So if we understand how layers of oppression affect multiple identitied communities, we can center their experiences to ensure that everybody has everything they need. You know, it's like they talked about the fight um, with the American for Disabilities Act and Creating the ramps on the sidewalks so people so wheelchairs could use them. I mean both parents um, rolling uh, Strollers actually benefit from that. You know, it's it's it benefits us all if we actually pay attention to the intersectional lens I think is the point Mm -hmm. Um, If we ensure access for people with disabilities, we're gonna actually create more access for everyone if we hold value for public safety that includes protecting black trans folks all of us will be safer. If we care about immigrant women being connected to their children and their families, all families will be together, right? So th- there's a piece about it, I think that it's both about our values and making sure that the folks most deeply affected and excluded um, because of oppression actually are helping to shape our world because that's only gonna make it better for all of us.
1: I hmm. guess we'll just have to leave it at that for right now. We're, I am I feel so blessed just to be able to have this opportunity to chat with you today to learn from you to hopefully educate uh, a large part of our population and people I start calling them mapcasters. now I don't know if that's nice. it. hopefully we'll catch on um but I guess just in closing is there anything that I think we missed or that I should have asked you that you'd love to share with us
2: No, Mike, this has been a great conversation. Um, I just loved talking with you and hearing your thinking as well as we sort of weave together this conversation. Um, I guess I'll just repeat again. Folks can check out Hand in Hand the Domestic Employers Network at www.domesticemployers.org or on Facebook at Hand in Hand the Domestic Employers Network. We're happy to be connected to folks and get your help to keep connecting to more people.
1: Thank you, Stacey. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you.